So our text for today from Ephesians depicts a community which is tearing itself apart with factions and infighting. The good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ dying for your sins and rising again for the forgiveness of those very sins has been delivered to this Roman city via Paul. But some time has passed and they're once again getting wrapped up in the rules of right living. So surely we need some sort of code to live by in the meantime between here and the kingdom of God. And so the church has been divided once again between Jew and Gentile or the uncircumcised and the circumcision, as they call themselves. Now that those who are outcast have been made equal heirs of the kingdom with the Jews, how do we interact with each other? Do we rub their noses in it? Do the Gentiles find reason to elevate themselves now that they're in the company with those who once cast them out? And it's into this world of fighting for who is right that Paul writes this letter. Now, it's far too easy to draw a comparison to our contemporary world in the time of Ephesus in reading this verse. You see two groups passionately arguing over who is right, sometimes even resorting to violence. I'm talking, of course, about the contentious issue which is ripping apart this nation and quite possibly the world. Now, I was asked not to address it today, and it's kind of the elephant in the room, but I'll just say it. Which is better, Star Trek or Star Wars? I mean, I'll be the first to admit the cultural impact of William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, and later Patrick Stewart. However, and this is controversial, I still hold that the Star Wars franchise comes out the winner. I mean, are you really going to compare Star Wars' action-packed sequences, fantastic creatures and locations, iconic ships, with William Shatner shaking around in his chair and pretending their space office was hit by a tornado, or torpedo, excuse me. Truly. There is no hope of unity between these two places. Grace and peace to you from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In Jesus' time, the fight in the Jewish world was not over science fiction, but between Pharisee and Sadducee, two opposing thoughts on the Jewish law. The law itself, the Ten Commandments, as well as the Torah, were the cornerstone of Jewish life. But how do you live by these laws? On the one hand, you had the Pharisees, the people scholars. They believed in angels, the resurrection, and the prophets. But they also believed that the law needed to change as the times did, a progressive law. On the other hand was the Sadducees, a group that held tightly to the law as written. The words had been given to them in a very particular way. And if it it was important for them to keep that word for word. If they were good enough for their forefathers, then dang it, it was good enough for them which meant nothing but the Torah and the temple rites were held on to. Now, for most intents and purposes, they were a dying breed. A few decades after Jesus' time, they would, in fact, die out. So how can two groups like this find unity? In our world, unity kind of has two options. The first is that one group loses, the other wins, and the winners get to dictate the terms of this unity. We see this time and time again in wars, in conquest, in business, and even on the playground. The other option for unity is where, is, is actually compromise, where both sides lose a little. Of course, neither side is particularly pleased with this option, and for a time, some sort of tense peace can be found until, of course, one of those sides decides, you know what, I really think we can get our way this time, and goes back to the fighting. So that they can be the winner this time. The world's unity takes advantage of others. 
it's bloody, and it swallows up the vulnerable. And in the middle of this fight between progressive and conservative Jewish law of the Pharisee and Sadducee comes Jesus, who refuses to play by their rules. First, he claims authority, which they hate. As in their worldview, whoever knows the Torah best has the authority. Whoever shows the most piety has the people's favor. And second, he refuses to pick a side. The Messiah comes, and what they really want to hear is, you were right. Those other guys are the real doorknob, but you got it right. Well done, good and faithful servant. You actually want to hear the same thing when it comes to Christ. You were right. You picked the right side. But just like the Pharisees and Sadducees, you will be disappointed and maybe even a little offended at what comes next. You see, their sin is named and Jesus instead goes a third route. Mark 12 is a great example of this, but there are others like the woman about to be stoned and the leper being healed and then having his sins forgiven. In Mark 12, they try to trap him into picking a side. Do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Which one is the greatest commandment? And this one, which is the classic middle school question. A woman marries three different men and they all die. Which one is she married to in heaven? And in each case, Jesus answers the question in a way which offers no satisfaction to the Pharisees, Sadducees, or us. Instead of loopholes, he answers the right, or his answers about right and wrong only show us our sin. They even increase our sin by showing us new ways that we aren't trusting God. This is all the law does, whether it's Torah law or American judicial system or even playground rules. The more laws you know, the more ways that you realize you have broken it, and the more ways that you realize you have not trusted God. And in response, in that very same verse of Mark 12, they decide then and there that they have to kill Jesus. He won't help their self-righteousness, so he has to go. For once, there is actually unity between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and it is to kill the Messiah. Each of these two groups passionately hope that their vision of ethics or the law will actually be the salvation of their people. You see, if it, we only followed the letter of the law to the T, then God would bless this nation and we would have unity and prosperity. Or, if we only had a law which benefits all, then we would be able to do away with all the things and systems in this world which harm others. It is exactly because they hold that this is their viewpoint, that their viewpoint will be the salvation of the nation or the world that they're willing to fight, and in Jesus' case, even kill for it. You see, this is what the world does to those who don't pick a side. The world doesn't know what to do with them, so they are either cast out or killed. Either you're helping me to work towards the salvation that I'm working on in my own hands, or you're against me. Either you're with us, or you're against us. But simply saying that Christ is not picking a side doesn't quite get at the heart of it. Christ isn't abstaining from this world. After all, he is truly human. He is a part of this world. So we instead can try to take this verse and turn it into a new code of living, one where we need to pull ourselves out of this world and just become monks. Um, but this just becomes more rules to follow. No. Instead, Christ came to make a new creation, a new body, 
in which both Jew and Gentile, cat people and dog people, Vikings fans and Packers fans, Sadducee and Pharisee, yes, even Star Wars and Star Trek fans, are reconciled to God by the cross. But how does this happen? Christ's identity, your citizenship in the new kingdom as an heir, isn't just another title to put on your resume beneath all the others. Christ makes it your identity. And he does it, it says in verse 16, by putting your hostility to death through the cross. Christ kills your identity, which is causing so much tension with others by forgiving it. He takes it like all the other sin on the cross and dies to it. Because beyond Pharisee and Sadducee, there are a hundred other places that you find your identity in a day. So, as a lesson to the high school youth group a few years ago, I put up a slide which had all sorts of places that we can find our identity. There were uh, uh, different sports brands and uh, brands of clothing and activities, and especially high schools. And I told the high school youth, up on here is the best high school and a few others. Immediately, the entire room burst into arguing and yelling over who had the best high school. Who had the best teachers? Who had the best students? Who had the best, especially, sports teams? Uh, and all of this got louder and louder and louder until one student turned to me and said, you did this on purpose. <laughs> and she was right. Because I wanted them to see what it is that they got worked up about. When we look at what we fight for, we see where we are putting our identities and where we think that we are going to be made whole. Where best suits our own self-preservation. So this can be everything from where is it that you're a passionate fan or where are you a staunch advocate? What opinions or beliefs put you at odds with your neighbor? Take a second and then hear this. None of these places have any chance at redeeming you or being your righteousness or your salvation. For if even one of our schemes had a chance at finally saving the world, of making us whole, then Christ wouldn't have had to come to die and save you at all. He wouldn't be needed. But instead, these places of identity are actually our sin, where we find that we are not trusting the promises of God to provide for us, to make us whole, and to save the world himself. To the point of the Pharisees and Sadducees, their greatest argument was over the Jewish law. What is the right way to do it? Was the Messiah going to be a Pharisee or a Sadducee? And instead, he delivers us the gospel, knowing that both of these options just lead to more sin and destruction. In the cross, there we go. In the cross, Christ takes all of our best and worst attempts at getting it right, and he actually dies to them. In verse 14, he says, He set aside in his flesh. No longer is there anything for the Jews and Gentiles to argue about in Paul's day. They are arguing over the corpse of who is right and wrong, the law itself. Or even who is the victim and the victimizer. You are dead to the law, and it has nothing to say to you. For just as Christ was dead and raised again, so you too were dead and raised again in baptism. And yet, you want to hear morality's words and hope that it will say, you did it. You were in the right those others, they're the real screw-ups. Here, instead, Christ's claiming word. Peace to you who are far away 
and peace to you who are near. Peace to those who are victims and those who took advantage of others. You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Where once there were two groups, now there is one body. God has named you his beloved child with whom he is well pleased on account of Christ in your baptism. However, like Christ, this makes you unsavory in the world's eyes. You won't fit in because your salvation has already been delivered to you. You don't need to pursue the world's 10-step program or sign up for membership salvation. On account of Christ, you have been redeemed. And what does God do with all these outcasts that he has scattered around the old world? We now exist as dual citizens in two kingdoms. Certainly, we have our obligations to this country we've been blessed with. We have, we've been called to vote, to care for our neighbor, to seek justice, and to unfortunately pay taxes. But... At the same time that we are part of God's eternal kingdom, which will be around long after this world has eaten itself up. So, I stole this from Marnie and Jeff's house. Um, They like to collect driftwood and rocks and other things, mostly Marnie. Um, This is driftwood, right? Wood that has been cast out from whatever tree or forest that it once existed in and into a body of water. And then in the body of water, it gets beat up and tossed around until it's so full of holes that it actually floats. Now, this is not great wood for building. Even with lumber prices as high as they are, nobody is uh, even compromised or thought of, maybe I should replace the wood in my house with this. And yet, God takes a look at it, takes a look at all of you, and says, just watch me. I'm going to build my whole temple out of this stuff. And at that cornerstone of the temple will be the wood that the entire world rejected, Jesus Christ himself. And not only is he going to build this, but that within that driftwood temple will live the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit dwells now. You have been knit together as a new creation in God's kingdom, his church. And you will lose sight of this somewhere between now and the parking lot and Monday, maybe Tuesday if I did a good enough job. There are so many places that you have been called into that want your identity, your job, your friends, your family, your country, your sports teams and activities, your kids or grandkids' activities. Even your big heart is vying for that coveted place where only God can sit as the identifier of who you are. And yet, who you are in Christ can never be taken away from you. Even after everything else has passed away, God's promise still stands. Your sins are forgiven. And you are a beloved child of God, placed within the communion of saints, one body, now and forever. Amen.